I have a hard time imagining that we'll get to international agreements that actually have impact on domestic policy. To really have an impact, you need partners who have a sense of what they want and can reach agreement. The open, rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalization? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortovec. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we have a very interesting question to discuss namely, can the Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council deliver? The Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council, TTC for short, met in May for the second time, this time in Paris, after an inaugural meeting in Pittsburgh in September last year. The recently created council, bringing together cabinet-level U.S. secretaries and European commissioners, has the goal to align American and European policies in areas such as semiconductors, robots, artificial intelligence, and trade. The Trade and Technology Council seeks to deepen transatlantic trade cooperation and to avoid new technical barriers to trade by cooperating on key policies such as technology, digital policy issues, and supply chain resilience. There are 10 working groups in areas ranging from technology standards to AI to climate and green tech, to export controls and investment screening. These 10 working groups are moving forward diligently, but as always, events, dear boy, events intervene. And it raises the question how the Ukraine war has shaped the ambitions of the TTC. In other words, what can we expect from the TTC moving forward? The main question, can the TTC deliver, of course, also raises the follow-up question on what can or should it deliver, what are its objectives, and how can those objectives be met? To take a closer look at this, I'm joined by three fantastic thinkers in the field. First of all, by Elvire Fabry. Elvire is a senior research fellow at the Jacques Delors Institute. The Jacques Delors Institute is also a partner of the AIG Global Trade Series. Elvire is in charge of trade policy, EU and globalization, and Brexit. And she's a regular contributor to our discussions. Secondly, I'm joined by Simon Lester. Simon is the founder of WorldTradeLaw.net and is a renowned U.S. trade policy analyst. And finally, we're joined by Rupert Schlegelmilch. Rupert has a wide-ranging career at DG Trade and is currently acting director general for trade, specifically focused on the Americas, at the European Commission. So let's kick off first with a question for Rupert. Rupert, seeing that you are very closely involved with the TTC, can you bring us up to speed about where things stand and what the key objectives of the TTC at the moment are? Thank you, Raymond. Thank you to my uh, co-discussant here for setting this up. 
Well, the TTC has always been, if you wish, an instrument which has more than one objective. And after the second meeting, I think we can say we have established a new format for discussions on global and bilateral economic issues of governance, of reducing trade barriers, but also facing the challenges uh, of a, a very fastly changing world. And you mentioned some of the more geopolitical issues. Now, we also have a fast changing world when it comes to addressing climate change or the digital transformation, which were the original two main themes the TTC uh, should try to look at, uh, plus uh, being very focused on the nexus between trade, security and technology. So the idea was to have a new format to allow the US and the EU to discuss these issues, not to negotiate them necessarily, but to have a channels of communication, joint ideas, and where possible, aligned approaches. And if that was the original intention, uh, I think we are on a good track. You mentioned 10 working groups, which is a lot. It takes enormous amount of bureaucratic effort to keep all of that alive and relevant, to be quite honest. It means that we have worked, and we'll come to the more details things, we've worked on technology standards, we have worked on export controls, we have worked on data governance, uh, secure supply chains, investment screening, SME access to technology and global trade, enemy, non-market economy behavior. So whatever you think about it, it's there in the TTC. Uh, I'll stop here just to say that the overall political objective was to get away from a very divisive discussion between the EU and the US, in particular during the years of the last administration, and to find a forward-looking agenda on issues that unite us. So I will immediately say this is not something which is dealt or set up against somebody else, be it China or now Russia. But it's what, first and foremost, it is a forum to work together for our own transatlantic needs. Of course, the other issues are very important and we'll come to that, but it shouldn't be seen in any other perspective. And just to, just to follow up, as you say, the intention is not to negotiate, but rather to see if common ground can be found. What does that mean in terms of proposals that can be expected to emerge from the TTC on either of the, the 10 working groups? Yes, I mean, there will be concrete proposals. Uh, you don't have to negotiate things like, you know, working together to finance ITC infrastructure in third countries to make them maybe secure. Uh, you don't need a negotiation to map rare earth magnet supply chains and think about what we could do to invest jointly, maybe in places in the world where some of these raw materials come from. And you don't need an, a negotiation to commit uh, not to use subsidies in the semiconductor subsidy race, which are WTO compatible, and to share the information what's going on, just to give you three examples. And, and Simon, turning to you as the token American on, on this panel, what, what's the mood music like in Washington when it comes to the TTC? Is there a lot of energy uh, behind it? Is there a momentum to, to start delivering on these, on these working groups? Or where do you see things going? I think overall the mood about the TTC is positive. I think that what we experienced during the Trump administration, and I think Rupert alluded to this, what was very tense U.S.-EU relations overall and, and U.S.-EU trade relations in particular. My own conversations with some Trump administration trade officials, as angry as they were about China, China's trade practices, it almost seemed like they were more angry at the EU sometimes. So, so things were in a bad state. And I think that the Biden administration, a key priority for them was to repair relations with the EU. And the, the Trade Technology Council is is one of the, the, the main avenues for doing that. So, so I think that if you think of the purpose of 
the Trade Technology Council as to repair relations rather than conclude some broad new trade agreement like the, the, the TTIP was supposed to be. If you think of it in sort of those narrow terms, then I, I think the mood is positive. I, I, I don't sense an expectation of we are going to have these concrete results. We're going to have these deliverables. I, I don't think that's in, in people's minds. But just as a way to, to bridge the gaps w- uh, with the EU, to, to have us working together on the, the various issues that the, we have these 10 working groups, to have the US and EU talking about all these things. And you know, while, while, while this is not an anti-China exercise, nevertheless, trying to get together to work together on issues that we both have with China, I think in that narrow sense that the mood is, mood is positive, people are hopeful that the, the TTC will repair our relations and you know, put the EU-US relationship in, in a better place. Yeah, right. And and Elvir, I mean, what do you what do you expect from the TTC? Not in terms of, okay, there are 10 working groups and it's it's very good that these discussions are taking place, but when you look at the state of the US EU trade debate, what do you what do you expect or perhaps hope to to see emerge from the TTC? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting just to to look back a little and to see where we come from. And when the, when the EU made that sort of proposal in December 2020 to re-engage some cooperative dialogue, to rebuild trust, the first priority was, uh, was to, to, to work on the irritants. And I think that's on that aspect, we have been moving on quite quickly on, on the Airbus Boeing issue, on, on steel and aluminum tariffs. And when we see today the agenda of the TTC, which is on the table, with all those 10 groups that uh, Robert mentioned, we see that the, the agenda is, is it's huge. And I think that we can differentiate three different pillars in, in between all those different issues. You have a first pillar, which is focused at easing trade between the EU and US, of course, and trying to, to avoid some, some trade barriers notably working on conformity assessment, easing some processes and things like that, and developing more opportunities for trade, uh, working on public procurement, convergence on some standardization of public procurement. But then a second pillar, which which is key, is the one which is dealing with the, the standards that have to be developed with new technologies. And in a way, this is an agenda that each partner has on its side and that it's, it's really particularly interesting to have that sort of uh, scope for, for transparency, cooperation, when, when we can consider that the TTC is a sort of incubator uh, for the development of standards for all those new technologies like uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, blockchains, additive manufacturing, all those new technologies. And then the, the third pillar, which is more dealing with security issues. This is, this is a key one also. And this is a key one which is proving now with, with the Russia's war to be decisive for, for coordination. And I think that there's some very innovative elements in the bilateral discussion, notably, for example, on outward investment control. That is mm-hmm. something new that is coming on the table in addition to export control. So we see that uh, we we're engaging really in in a very strategic dialogue, but of course many of those issues have to see with the standardization, and we know that they rely on very heavy, slow processes. So we we, we cannot expect to have 
a lot of low hanging fruits in the short term. And, and it's more, we have to be conscious that we're engaging in a, in a deep, long process of cooperation. But it, it raises this question that everything all three of you mentioned made sense before the 24th of February, 2022, and still makes sense today. But how has the Ukraine war kind of changed the debate about the TTC and the, the things that the Trade and Technology Council can deliver. So if I look at the press statements in the run-up to the May TTC meeting, a lot of emphasis was put on the value of the council being a transatlantic coordination mechanism to respond to the challenges presented by the Ukraine war. And, and therefore, though it's not designed as a response to Russia. It, it seems like the geopolitical impetus to use the TTC to respond to it seems pretty clearly there. I don't know, Rupert, if you can, if you can shed light to what extent, say, your work with respect to the TTC has changed as a consequence of Russia's invasion in, in Ukraine. No, I think, I think it's correct to say, and, and I think it's also a good thing that a framework like the TTC with a relative large number of ongoing working groups, uh, discussions, is flexible enough to react to events, as you mentioned yourself. Events, things happen. I can give you a few examples where this has led to actual reorientation. And none of the working group has a straitjacket that they can't talk about other things. So we started the secure supply chain work very much focused on what I mentioned already, rare earth and solar, because we need that. We need these things for the global for the energy uh, transition that we want to do. We're very dependent on solar panels, for example, from China. We're very dependent for some of the rare earth from other parts of the world. And we are also, I think, dependent on production, not only raw materials, but also production on some of these components. It it wasn't a big step to then say, let's look at the supply chain working group also on the the Russia angle, that the different products, but you have the same problems. You have to find a mapping way to map these things. You have to get the information from companies who are not necessarily always keen to tell you how the supply chain functions because it's a competitive advantage. You have different products, but some of them actually reinforce the discussion uh, when you think about uh, sourcing issues and responses, policy responses. And the same is true for the work on clean energy. Everybody realizes that the, the transition will get a boost from the fact that we have to phase out fossil fuels, not only for the benefit of the climate, but also for the benefit of energy dependency, reducing that from certain parts of the world. In this case, it's, it's Russia. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And the same is true for investment controls. We, we were talking already about risks, and we used the format there to not only talk about the risk from technological theft or security competition from China, but now, of course, it's very much on products we export to Russia. So that was a framework we could easily use. And I'll just give you these three examples. There is also, of course, the question of what we can do to help Ukraine, which you see in the declaration as well. So that is a new element, which maybe was not there in that case, but also that can be accommodated. We have work underway on all these issues. That's great to, to hear, Rupert. Thanks. It raises another question. As events sort of preoccupy policymakers on both, on both sides of the Atlantic, to what extent can the TTC contribute to actually liberalization of trade between the US and the EU? 
I wonder if Simon, if you have if you have thoughts on this. You mentioned it a little bit that it's not really something that you expect, but it seems like it is a missed opportunity if if the TTC doesn't deliver on on abilities to either harmonize or develop a sense of um, commonality when it comes to removing non-tariff barriers to trade. I think that if you listen to you know if you were just focusing on what the the EU wants, I think you you might. There might be some scope for for liberalization, harmonization, barriers. If you listen to the U.S. side, in particular, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, you know, the speeches she's given, the you know the conversations she's had over the past you know few months, she has expressed a, a deep skepticism about globalization, and she's made it pretty clear that she thinks we've gone too far. And I think that if there's both a political element and a policy element to this. You know, she worries about voting patterns in the United States and our past liberalization is what led to, in her view, uh, the election of Donald Trump and America first sort of policies. So I, I think she she worries that she seems to genuinely worry that we've already done too much and we need to scale back a bit. And, you know, I suppose you know, there's always sort of degrees of clarity here. And, and I suppose she could be more clear and say definitively, I'm against all liberalization at all times, you know, for the next three years. And she hasn't said that, but she said enough. She's expressed enough skepticism about possibility of market access in the, in the, in the context of the Indo-Pacific economic framework that it doesn't seem like the U.S. trade agenda, and you know, while she's not the only person in the administration, she is the head trade person. It doesn't seem like there's uh, the possibility that there's there's space for the idea of liberalization in general, and with the EU in particular. So, in that you know political context in the U.S., I just don't see how there, there's room for you know U.S. EU liberalization in the TTC context. Now, there are people in the United States, there are members of Congress. Who are pushing back against it, saying, "Hey, what about market access? What about liberalization? Either in the Indo-Pacific context or in the EU context?" But you know, her response to that has been fairly clear. I mean, again, there could be more clarity, clarity, but it's fairly clear that she doesn't think that's the right move right now. Could things change after the U.S. midterm elections? I suppose they could, but I don't get the sense that they will. So I just think from a U.S politics and policy side, liberalization with the EU is just something that's not on the table right now for the Biden administration. So that, that's my read of, of U.S. politics. Uh, we can reassess this after the midterm elections. Maybe things change, but, but for, for now, I think that's where we are. And that's a little bit uh, of a of a cold shower, if you will, on on what we should expect from U.S. trade policy. And of course, it chimes with things we, we're, we're hearing and, and reading. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to continue talking about can the Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council deliver with Elvire Fabry, Rupert Schlegelmich, and Simon Lester. As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, 
the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. We're back from our break, and we're going to continue talking about the Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council with Elvire, Rupert, and Simon. Elvire, in a way, it's perhaps a difficult question, but it, the Trade and Technology Council is the main transatlantic trade initiative. And at the same time, we're hearing that it's, it's not about negotiating, it's about coordinating positions, it's about standardization for new technologies. And that liberalization might not be really in the cards. Are the transatlantic partners then doing enough in a context where we see China investing in, in RCEP, where China wants to join CPTPP, where there are all these other trade initiatives taking place? H- how should we place the TTC in that broader global context of new trade initiatives? Well, I think that the focus that is made on the digital sector through different working groups, it's really key because uh, Simon w- was commenting the, what, what may be a decreasing engagement in liberalization uh, on the U.S. side. But we, we see that the, the, the focus of uh, the USTR at the moment is really the development of partnership and convergence with trade partners, notably in the Indo-Pacific. And they are, they are more and more active in different formats of forums in the Indo-Pacific and notably with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, trying to promote uh, U.S. Uh, digital standards. So I think it's, it is key to have that cooperation at the transatlantic level. One question that is raised is precisely the limits of a transatlantic exercise that is not inclusive in it, and that is not already preparing for the inclusiveness of other partners in the coordination exercise, because the EU is itself trying to engage with the new partners in the Indo-Pacific, but more on a bilateral basis. We can wonder how those different dynamics on the US side and the EU side with those partners in the Indo-Pacific will overlap and they, if there's no possibility for additional conflicts in that region. I think, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And I'd like to get Rupert's view on this, if possible. The United States is, of course, entertaining this idea of an Indo-Pacific economic framework that has an important digital element to it. But the EU has also announced a digital partnership with Japan that seems to mirror a number of the things that are negotiated or sorry discussed in the context of the of the TTC and the EU has just announced a trade and technology council with India how should we see these different initiatives i mean from an outside perspective it seems quite logical that you try to want to try to bring them together but how how should we think about this well Rem, I think the first thing I want to echo is what what Simon has said. I I don't think we see a lot of appetite for trade liberalization in the U.S., certainly, but it's also limited, if you wish, when it comes to some sectors, and agriculture is, of course, the most important one. It's also limited in the EU. We all have um, the experience of trying to do a very ambitious project, which in the end didn't work with TTIP. 
So the challenge is to to look at other issues. I think a trade of tariff negotiation, much that many people would like to have, it is just not going to happen in the current politics. Now, we all know that especially tariffs is not the real issue between the EU and the US if you discount the few peak tariffs which are still there. It's much more of a regulatory environment. And here, I think it's easier to argue that trade facilitation actually means looking at some of these more technical issues. Uh, still not a given that anyone is a, a big taker on the US side on regulatory more cooperation, which will lower some of the red tape and barriers. But at least you can talk about this because this includes the regulation on the EU side on services, the DMA, DSA and other things which are very often portrayed, not necessarily in my view correctly, but nevertheless, they have an impact on trade that's clear on services trade. So we need to be cautious and look at these issues, uh, what uh, you know, the art of the possible, to get a good discussion going. And many of you, two of you have already said that this is complex and takes time. You need to have a political buy-in on the regulatory side, which, which are all people who normally look more for the domestic regulation agenda, not necessarily on cooperation with the rest of the world. But the reality is that all these other initiatives, be it the Indo-Pacific framework, which is being developed in the U.S., or the digital proposals that we have made uh, to other parts of the world, uh, where we are either in parallel or already have FTAs or are continuing to look to deepen and broaden the scope of the discussion, is that many of these discussions are necessary or, or useful and good if you look at what trade will look like in 20 years, because this will be a, a trade which will be completely enabled by digital means. Even the goods trades will have lots of that in the logistics and the services and so on. So having good rules on digital uh, and what is possible and what not is extremely important. Uh, and we, what we don't want to see, and that's why these things are all, so in a way, need to be looked at together, that we have compartmentalized digital spaces with different requirements of data storage, different requirement of access to data, uh, what is possible by way of surveillance, and so on. So there is a lot of logic in also looking at the various initiatives and trying to create as big a digital space as possible uh, between our economies. And that is obviously the transatlantic ones where the tension has gone down a lot. Let's be clear. The tension has gone down a lot from the heyday of GPDR uh, and DMA, DSA. I think we, we realize that we have a joint challenge to, to look at in, in that field. And just one word, I don't want to talk too long, but one word on the India TTC. This is a very different animal. We don't even know yet what exactly it will do. It will not be a similar thing, the same thing as we have with United States. It's going to be well developed. On top of this, we have an FTA negotiation in parallel where some of the issues will be addressed. So we're still sorting out a relatively narrow agenda on some of the, the pure technology trade issues, uh, but not this kind of broad standards and so on discussion that we have in, in our uh, US EU TTC. Right. Interesting. Simon, do you see something similar in the in the US debate about wanting to try to tie things, particularly with respect to the digital domain, together in, in various dialogues, both transatlantic and uh, in the context of the IPEF? I do see that. I do see that the, the US trade folks, political leadership, has a sort of broad agenda of, of issues they want to talk about and they want to talk about them with the EU and they want to talk about them uh, with trading partners, you know, in other parts of the world, including the, the Indo-Pacific. I think that the, the difficulty I, I see with a lot of this is that internally within the United States, there's not a lot of agreement on how domestic governance, domestic regulation should work 
in, in data and other areas. So while we're in the midst of fighting it out internally, I, I'm not sure how much progress we can make externally. You know, whatever digital trade provisions, you know, USTR comes up with and, and then brings to its trading partners, you're going to have pushback from different constituencies within the United States. And so, you know, you're going to have the the progressive side who's skeptical of, of, of all of this. And then you're going to have a, a sort of international of these international governance rules, or at least the ones that have been put out there. And then you're going to have the, the big tech folks who are sort of pushing their view. And there's just, there's just conflict there. So, you know, I, I, I'm all for these conversations internationally, but I, I do feel like I know we've had the internet and, and big tech for a while now, but I feel like we're still kind of in the infancy of all that. And mm-hmm. we need to you know, come to some internal settlements of, of these issues before we can really expect you know, conclusions internationally. You know, we, we need to figure out what we want. And then we can go to other countries and say, you know, we think you should move in our direction, but we also have to listen to them. And so, I, you know, I guess I have a little more hope as if we're talking about the US, US and EU. When you talk about the Indo-Pacific, there's a lot of different countries there with various different governance regimes, political systems. And so I have, I have a hard time imagining that we'll get to international agreements that actually have impact on domestic policy. I mean, you can, you can sign an international agreement, you can keep the language vague, you can make it not enforceable, but I just don't know that there's that much impact there. To really have an impact, you need partners who have a sense of what they want and can reach agreement. I, I, I just, I don't think we're there yet. That doesn't mean I don't think we should have the conversations. I think we should have them. I just, I have somewhat low expectations for, you know, international, the, the digital agreements that actually have an impact on, on domestic policy. I mean, it's very good to hear from Rupert that uh, the tension at the transatlantic level has has decreased over the past period with respect to GDPR or the DMA and uh, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. At the same time, those issues are still there. And it, it raises again also this question, I think fundamental to the, the ambition of the TTC, whether the TTC is there to provide transparency over different positions or whether it's actually there to really resolve differences of approaches. And I, I, I'm just putting that out there. I don't know which, which of you three want to pick up on that. I have another more specific question when it comes to semiconductors, because though it's fantastic to hear that tensions have been reduced on the, on the digital side between the transatlantic partners, when it comes to semiconductors, both the United States and the EU have these CHIPS Acts, I think the ambition is to ensure that the CHIPS acts on both sides of the Atlantic kind of dovetail, that they reinforce each other, that they are complementary. But from what we learn is that we are still some way away from that. So again, a question here is, can the TTC deliver? I don't know which of you three feel, feel the urge to, to take me to task on that question. Maybe just a short comment. Maybe, maybe there's a difference between the two issues because on, on DSA, DMA, the, the EU had the first mover advantage in a way that it was a little more advanced in terms of domestic regulation and that, uh, it allows to, to, to bet on the outcomes of uh, best practice exchanges a little more. It's not the same ground for semiconductors was where, as you just said, 
both came with really with their own strategy model and the CHIPS Act, US CHIPS Act, and where we, we, we more directly confronted to the parallel strategies on those issues. The way I see semiconductors playing out, this is all you know speculative at this point. What we're talking about on both sides is lots of subsidies, large amounts of subsidies to encourage domestic production of semiconductors. And you know, we can debate whether that's good policy or not. But what I what I see in the existing trading system is mechanisms that will almost inevitably, almost certainly lead to some, you know, trade war here. Look, I mean, you have in the US and EU and countries around the world, you have mechanisms for imposing countervailing duties on subsidies from other countries. And the, the, the framework is sort of, you know, automatic. It's established. Governments only have a limited amount of control over it. If you're a producer in the U.S., all of a sudden there are European uh, semiconductor imports that benefit from subsidies, you have the incentive to file a countervailing duty complaint against them and try to get tariffs imposed on them, and vice versa, from the EU to the U.S. and all around the world. So if we're in a situation where all governments are, are, are increasing their subsidies to semiconductors, you might get more domestic production, but you're also going to get um, trade disputes over this. And, and this isn't a new thing. We've had them for, for many years in the semiconductor industry. You know, I just, I see this all is just sort of like a, a, a train wreck. You know, the trains come along, we see it's going to hit the car and there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, it seems like the US and the EU are determined to you know, reestablish or to, you know, to enhance their domestic semiconductor industries and they're going to do that through subsidies. But if they do, there will be, trade conflict, domestic industries in each place will feel like they're hurt by the other person's subsidies. I mean, we see this with Airbus and Boeing. Both companies feel aggrieved by the other company, by the subsidies the other country company receives. And I, I feel like the semiconductor industry is inevitably moving further in, in that direction. I mean, there's already a history of this in the industry, and, and I, I don't really see how to avoid it, you know, kind of down the road. Okay. And, and now Rupert is going to tell us how we're going to avoid that train wreck. Well, I mean, the people who are dealing with this are also the people who had to negotiate the Boeing issue out of the way finally after 18 years of litigation. If you look at the outcome of the meeting in Paris, where we have a dedicated session part of the semiconductor paper on incentive structures, where we already identified the issue, I couldn't agree more with Simon that we have to get our head around this before it's too late complicated because of the actors, there are state-level actors in the, in the U.S. who are certainly not bound by any state aid regime. We have a bit more context in the EU because we do actually control state aid down to the local level up from a certain size. But we are aware of the problem and we have to avoid that. In any case, we will not be able to out-subsidize the Chinese, let's be clear. So we have to have other tools to maybe fight the, the disloyal situation, uh, con um, competition who might have much, much deeper pockets. If the CHIPS Act comes online and our plans become true, we will still have to have guardrails on what is done. And the reference to WTO subsidy regime is already in there, in the text. No? So we are cognizant of that and we will not violate this knowingly. And we will have a good and robust discussion, complicated as it is, to avoid a uh, 10 years down the road, uh, a market uh, full of semiconductors that nobody thinks have been produced fairly. And a final question from my side. Where are we going to be a year from now? So are we going to uh, be satisfied with the TTC as a, as a coordinating and a discussion mechanism? Or will we have seen real, tangible 
results also with an eye to where the, the, the U.S. political calendar at that time sits. What um, some crystal ball gazing, if you will. Elvire, I see you smiling. Where, where, what do you expect a year from now? Well, I think it was a question for Rupert, but let's see. Well, I, I think that it was already very interesting to see that during the past weeks, the US and the EU were able, in the framework of the TTC, to negotiate that waiver on export control, not to be trapped into the different export control measures on, on both sides. And obviously that the, the war in Russia could speed up some discussions or give more political momentum to some issues, even on investment screening. And it will be hard to measure, like to, to present really the outcomes concretely. What we, we could expect, of course, to, to have some improvements, for example, on very concrete technical issues, like on carbon footprint measures that, that are very essential for public procurement development, but uh, also in, the, in many other issues. But I, I would say that uh, the progress of uh, standardization cooperation will be harder to measure in the coming month. And Simon, very briefly, what uh, what do you expect uh, 12 months from now on this? I, I think my views are similar to Alfier because I mean, she mentioned investment training and export controls and, and measuring carbon intensity. And I think those are the three areas I would point to as, okay, then mm -hmm. that's where I can see that the, the, the two sides are somewhat in the same place and, and we could see something, some positive um, results. I, I do think uh, the other areas where I'm not sure there's a way to bridge the gaps and, you know, I, I, again, talking is great. I encourage the, they encourage you know, these conversations between the U.S. and the EU, but I'm just, I, it's hard for me to imagine something measurable. You know, so, so measuring carbon emissions is, is an easier one in terms of coordinating policy and taking actions that each side, you know, thinks are effective and, and you know, not too confrontational towards the other. I think that's where it, it really becomes difficult. When I listen to what the Biden administration is saying versus what the European you know, Commission and others in Europe are saying um, about, you know, carbon border adjustments, it just doesn't seem like uh, they're, they're on the same page. So, so I, I think I, I think I agree with Elvira and sort of mm -hmm. there are some areas where we might see something, but then there are others where we probably you know, shouldn't be so hopeful. And, and Rupert, final word for you. A year from now, where, where do you hope we stand with the TTC? Well, I have two, two hopes. One of them is that we have really established the format uh, and be able to prioritize some of the issues that Jim, you have mentioned to avoid further or, or, or problems down the road. Uh, DMA, DSA have been mentioned. I think the tension will be now in some of the implementing measures, possibly. The, the law is there, but of course it has to be you know, actually implemented. So I think we will have this, this good format to discuss whatever comes up in this broad, broad area, a continued cooperation. I also hope that we're going to get a little bit more visible, what I would call flagship projects, things which really are not just a constant stream of smaller deliverables, but a real game changer. We're, we will discuss that kind of initiative in the couple, next couple of months in order to keep also the political momentum which, you know, you can't just talk to tell your principles, you're going to talk mm -hmm. about regulatory cooperation three times in a row. So you really have to come up with also more political content, uh, bigger initiatives. This is something we still have to think a little bit more about what that could be. Uh, but I do think that uh, the overall appreciation is that this is a desperately needed or really needed way to to talk about many of these issues in a flexible way on pre pre sort of formulated avenues and not just on an ad hoc basis where you always are behind the facts. So that's my hope, uh, a small a picture of 
continuing good cooperation, plus maybe some more bigger visible initiatives that we will define in the next couple of months. Great. And that's, and that's a fantastic note to end on. And I think we all, we all wish you well, Rupert, in your endeavors to make that, to make that happen. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. Elvire Fabry, Simon Lester, and Rupert Schlegelmilch, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights with me today on the question, can the Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council deliver? If you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the Global Trade Series 2022, please go to our website, www.aig.co.uk slash gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.